eternity. That the difference between now and then might be our ability to fully experience God's glory. I think about um, in Isaiah and in Revelation where the Bible talks about these creatures, um, I think it's the seraphim, these big six-winged angel things that are in the very throne room of throne room of God, and from their creation they've been there. And their response to the presence of God in his glory is to cry out, holy, holy, holy. He's so overwhelming. I think, it, I think it's Isaiah as well, where the scriptures talk about his train filling the temple. And I've heard teaching on that, and the, the train filling, it's like the train of his robe is filling the temple. It's not um, uh, filling like in an instant. It's a never-ending filling. It's his glory. It's different facets of his person being revealed for eternity's sake. So I really think that knowing God in his fullness is what eternity will be like, and it will be the blessing of heaven for us to be able to experience God as he reveals himself more and more and more, never-ending because he's infinite. In John 17, verses 1 through 3, Jesus spoke these things, it says, And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the scriptures that we're going to bounce from today, because we're doing Ephesians, are 15 through 17 of chapter 1. This is Paul to the church at Ephesus. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And it's interesting, the translators of different Bible translations must have had different impressions about who that spirit was. Or maybe if it's more than one spirit, because in the, um, the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the New International Version, the word spirit is capitalized. That would imply that they think that that spirit that Paul is praying for the Ephesians to receive is the Holy Spirit himself. In the King James and the New American Standard, it's a small s. So it's not deity spirit, Holy Spirit, it's one of God's anointed angels to bring this wisdom and revelation to them. And maybe it's one spirit and maybe it's two spirits if it's not Holy Spirit, one that would bring the revelation of God, that would open their minds to more of God, and a second one that would bring them the wisdom to be able to process exactly what that revelation means. In either case, it's an awesome prayer. If you're ever wanting to pray a good prayer over yourself or over somebody that you love, or even better, maybe somebody that, that you might struggle with, pray that they would get a wisdom of, excuse me, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, because nothing bad can come from that. Okay. The Apostle Paul is an interesting person to have... Let me back up a little bit. I was, I was, uh, I think I told you this Last week, if I didn't, forgive me, it's not that big a deal. But I felt compelled to pray for one of the racquetball guys when I was playing racquetball. I actually went to get a drink of water. I was walking back to the court that I was 
playing in. And I passed this guy who's an awesome brother in the Lord, um, just a really great guy. And I felt compelled to pray for him. So I stopped and I turned around and I said, hey, can I pray for you? And I didn't have anything like, you know, hey, pray for this for him. And what just came out of me was everything that I desire from God. Intimacy, to know him, to see him, to, to be filled with him, to abide in Christ. All these different things are what I prayed over him. And I think it's interesting that Paul would pray over the Ephesians and also over the church in Colossae, probably lots of other places that we may not have recorded, that very same kind of a thing because he could pray that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God from a position of authority because he had experience with God himself. Very, very amazing experience. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he writes, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me, now this is Paul speaking, is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul's whole revelation of the gospel came directly from Jesus Christ. Now Paul's revelation didn't come in Jesus' three or three and a half year ministry. It came literally after Jesus walked, after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus resurrected, and after Jesus was ascended. Because as the church was being birthed after the ascension, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He even went back to Jerusalem after a number of years of, of, of preaching this gospel, and he, and he talked to the ones that were of reputation, you know, Peter and James, to make sure that his gospel and their gospel, because they had been with him, was the same gospel. But it was revealed to him by Jesus himself after Jesus ascended to be next to the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, now he's speaking kind of in the third person, but he's speaking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul had a spiritual, he thinks, or physical, he's not sure, experience in heaven itself. And from those experiences and maybe other experiences, Paul could do two things for sure. He knew that God could be known, and he knew that God is worth knowing. Amen? Okay. So, let me just give you some of Paul's teaching about knowing God. Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 through 14, and uh, this is just a little bit later in the same book that we're studying. As he gave, and he gave, he being Jesus, some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So, the, the five offices of the church, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher, are considered as gifts from Jesus to his church. And the purpose of those gifts are first the equipping of the saints. That's you, that's us. The equipping of the saints for the works of service. Second, the building up of the body of Christ, the church. So, so uh, as a pastor... My responsibility to God is a gift to you in, in this particular context of our relationship is equipping you. The scriptures equip us. The preaching of the scriptures equip us um, to do the works of service. And then secondly, that we would build each other up. The building up of the body, each and every one of us, encouraged, edified, built up. Until we attain unity of the faith 
and a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And this is the cool, cool part, that that knowledge is to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we have a little headroom, but we have a lot of awesomeness to expect, right? Okay, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, this is Paul again, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So for Paul, nothing had greater value than knowing Jesus. And as I was putting the message together, I was thinking, now, what's the knowing that Paul is speaking of? Because it's possible that maybe he was speaking of knowing Jesus in a saving way, like that you would have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I think that's very true, and I think he would have said that that is absolutely valuable. But I think at least also... And probably more specifically, he's speaking to actually knowing Jesus, like you would know a person. And if you look at some of these other scriptures and and the full um, body of scripture, I'm certain that he meant knowing Jesus in the way that I'm talking about knowing Jesus today. Not necessarily exclusively a saving knowledge of Jesus, that you would confess him as Lord and believe in your heart. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. This is, again, his opening letter to the church at Colossae. For this reason also, or his opening comments of his letter to the church at Colossae, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This one helps me to believe what I just said is true about the previous one because The saving knowledge of God is a binary thing. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either saved or you're not. There isn't an increase in salvation from the perspective of having it or not having it. But there is an increase in the knowledge of God, in the knowing of God, and of knowing His Son Jesus, our Lord, that we should be uh, passionate about attaining and that He understood because He had such revelation of God that He prays it over these churches so that they would have an increase in that knowing of God. Uh, now this is Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and goodness, or godliness, excuse me. So, grace and peace are multiplied in the knowledge of God, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing that we need for life or for godliness that doesn't come through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Let me read that again without chopping it up. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own Glory and excellence. How is peace multiplied to you in the knowledge of God? It's always going to be in a storm because that's when peace is necessary. So let's say, for example, um, I'm in a financial storm and I don't know how I'm going to meet some financial obligation. And as I come to find out that God has everything that I need and that it's his good pleasure to provide for me, then that he will make a way for me to come out of this storm, as I come to know him in that way, I stop having um, anxiety 
over the issue that I don't see how I can resolve because I know in him it'll be resolved. Grace and peace are multiplied in the knowledge of God. As we come to know God more, the grace on his life is released over us, or maybe, maybe we were able to receive that grace more fully, and the peace of heaven that, that surpasses understanding, right? That's Philippians chapter 4. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now dwell on these things, things that are lovely and excellent, that have a good report. So in knowing God, the fruit of peace and grace are more manifest in our lives. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, this is Paul again. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our, warf- of our, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The essence of spiritual victory, victory in spiritual warfare, is the knowledge of God. Because, see, absent of the knowledge of God, we have no standard to put speculation against, to compare it to. If we don't know God, then any speculation that comes to us, which most likely is a flaming arrow from the enemy, trying to draw us away from a true knowledge of God, will be able to take place in our minds because we can't, we can't measure it against anything that we know to be true. So as we increase in the knowledge of God, as we have these speculations and these things that would exalt themselves above God, try to come into our mind and create these fortresses and strongholds that, that goof up the way we see life, we take and we hold them next to the standard of God and we say, not true, and we cast them down. We say... Not true, and we cast them down. But maybe God is speaking to us. We look and we say, ah, I know you, God, and that's from you. Yes, let's build a fortress of truth in my mind. Outside of a knowledge of God, our ability to be effective in spiritual warfare is zero. When we get to Ephesians 6 and we start to talk about the armor of God, we're going to find out that every single element in the armor of God boils down to truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in the knowledge of the truth that we're able to do battle and to stand firm against the enemy because we have something to fight with, and that is the knowledge of the truth, which is God himself. Okay, there's some, <laughs> that's the positive side. There's, there, there's some negative speak to this in the scriptures as well. Jeremiah 4.22. And, and I'm going to read you one, 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 a few, a, a few verses from the Old Testament. These verses need to be taken in context. They're, they're, they're part of bigger stories. But the principles that they speak, I think, are absolutely true and absolutely applicable to what we're talking about today. So, uh, Jeremiah 4.22. God speaking through the prophet. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are, <laughs> they are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. To have the opportunity of knowing God and not take that opportunity to know God is foolishness. Let's go to the New Testament, and there's a, a fairly long course of Scripture, but it'll, it'll paint that picture for us 
from the New Testament as well. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. So, so hear this from the perspective of knowing God. Hear this from the perspective of, uh, of the opportunity to know God. And hear this also from the perspective of what you do with that opportunity. Right? He said that his children are foolish because they haven't known him. Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not, only, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. While that's a mouthful. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Knowing about God is different than knowing God. But there's accountability even in just knowing about God to God. He said they're without excuse. They have, they'll stand before God. These people with this long list of just horrible attributes about the way they live their lives are going to stand before God and they are going to know that they're guilty. And they're going to have no excuse before God because he made himself known to them. They never reached out to try to get to know him in a way that would be personal, but they were made known about him, by him, and the word says they're without excuse. Just like the Jeremiah scripture. They were foolish. Matter of fact, Paul in Romans, or excuse me, yes, Romans calls them foolish. They became futile in their uh, speculations. Just like I read to you in the Second Corinthians 10, we were destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. See, their mind would speculate. And, then, and they would hold on to the futility of the speculations because they chose not to have a proper knowledge of God that they could then measure their speculations against. And all these bad things were the fruit of that. Um, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, to know God. They didn't see it important. It wasn't a thing that they would chase after to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind. They chose not to know God. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools. 
So that's the, the fruit, some of the fruit of knowing God, some of the consequence of choosing not to know God. Here's a little bit about the how of knowing God. Again, all these need to be read in context, but I think the principles are valid and stand by themselves. Deuteronomy 4.29 But from there you will seek the Lord and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Jeremiah 29.10-14 Then you will call upon me, this is God speaking, and uh, come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Sincerity, passion, desire, all your heart. First Chronicles 28, 9 and 10. As for you, uh, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. If you seek him, he will let you find him. Hebrews eleven six and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is, he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I think some of the translations say who diligently seek him. So the reward of seeking God is finding God. The glory is in the actual revelation of God. The, the believing in and the seeking after brings a reward and the reward is him. That's the, that's the greatest thing we could ever find is greater, greater revelation of God. Because in the revelation of God, all these amazing things are possible for us. All the lies become aware. They become exposed as God reveals himself to us. The way is to actually seek after, knowing him, and to seek with sincere passion and all of our heart's desire. So let me give a quick summary. First, the opportunity to know God is to the fullness of Christ. The value of knowing God surpasses all things. The knowledge of God can increase infinitely. There is no end. There's no time when we're ever going to see all there is to see of God. If you ever think, wow, you know, I'm not sure what heaven's going to be like, get a glimpse of God and understand that he will reveal himself, his glory to us for eternity and never run out to just amaze us and awe us. The grace and, or excuse me, grace and peace are multiplied in the knowledge of God. We have available to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. Victory in spiritual warfare is founded in the knowledge of God. It's foolishness to ignore the opportunity to know God. And finally, the way to know God is with all our heart's desire. I've had seasons of my walk with the Lord where um, Scripture has opened up to me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I would think to myself, I don't love God that much. I love other things, maybe not that much, but I love other things better than I think I love God. And I never knew what to do with it. The first thing that tried to come to me was guilt and shame, but it wasn't able to stick, and I praise you, God, for that. So I just thought maybe... I have to humble myself and I have to ask God. And I would pray prayers, simple little prayers like this. Jesus, the Bible says that you're the groom and I'm the bride. Now, I have groom experience, but I don't have bride experience. But I know as groom, as the man in a man-lady relationship, it's my job to woo the lady. It's my job to um, bring the gifts and to, and, to, and to 
do the kinds of things that would show her that I'm the kind of person that she would desire. So I would ask Jesus to do that to me. I would say, Jesus, I want to love you the way I'm supposed to love you, but I don't think I know you well enough to love you the way I'm commanded to love you. Please show yourself to me so that I can. Simple, easy prayers like that. And he does. There is a song called Dance With Me, O Lover of My Soul. As weird as it sounds, I would try to imagine myself being dancing with Jesus and, and having him just like hold me in his arms and, and just let me feel his love so that I could reflect back to him that love that's appropriate. And my love for him has grown. I don't know yet if I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I know that I'm on a trajectory towards that point. The second thing you can do is you can do this. Heavenly Father, I ask in the name of Lord Jesus that you give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that I might know you more, that I might come to this place of intimate knowledge in you. And pray the prayer that Paul prayed over yourself. Let me just give you one last thought that I had, and this actually came to my head during worship today. Genesis, so you won't have these scriptures, um, Caitlin. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man. God created me. God created you in his own image. In the image of himself, he created you. Male and female, he created you. God blessed you. Maybe what Paul understood was that absent of a sincere and true knowledge of God, it, it's impossible for us to really have any knowledge of ourself. Maybe the speculation that comes into our minds that builds the fortresses is about our very selves. If the enemy can get us to have a perception of ourselves that's inconsistent with the truth, then he doesn't need anybody to help to condemn us because he can get us to do it ourselves. So maybe the most important thing that you can draw today from why it's important is to know, to know God is that in the knowledge of God, you having been created in his image, can't know yourself until you know him. And the better you come to know him, the truer you'll come to know yourself. And as you come to know yourself as an image bearer, then the spots and the wrinkles and the I shouldn't have, but I did, all that junk becomes what it is, spots and wrinkles, not who you are, because he has no spots and wrinkles. And you're going to be presented to Jesus by himself as his bride without spot or wrinkle. So what God created in his mind before the foundation of this world, which is absolutely beautiful and perfect, is what God's going to present back to himself as bride. From then to then, including now, it doesn't change. All that changes when he thought you up in his mind, perfect and beautiful. You got born into a fallen world, spots and wrinkles. When he gets you back, perfect and beautiful. Underneath the spots and wrinkles, guess what's there? Perfect and beautiful. And you need to believe it. Because you can be free when you know that you're made in the image of God. Amen? Okay, so let me just read this to you. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith 
in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that you might know yourself. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for just blessing us with the opportunity to come to know you. Thank you for Christy, Lord. Thank you that she is just like a Stradivarius in the hand of the most perfect musician. Thank you that you encourage us in dreams and vision and and prophecy and singing. And and there's so many ways that you're working to help your, your church to see itself in truth so that we can show the world you in truth. We praise you and we honor you and I pray that we truly are your church on the street, Lord. Bring in your love and your glory to every corner of this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you guys have an awesome...